Today's episode is sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone, from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 214 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about creating craft media with my guest, Anne Merrow. Anne started off as a book editor, but has turned a series of hobbies, knitting, spinning, and weaving, into a beloved career. She is a founder and partner of Long Thread Media, which publishes handwoven, spin-off, piecework, little looms, and other content related to fiber arts. She serves as the company's editorial director and host of the Long Thread podcast. Anne lives in northern Colorado with her husband and naughty cats. Anne Mara, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to talk to you and to talk about Long Thread Media and your journey in craft media. So it's great to have you here. And um, uh, let's start with Long Thread. So this is a company that you helped to found or co-founded in 2019 Tell us a little bit about the circumstances around which this company came to be and why you thought it was important as it was an important mission to save these fiber publications that were sort of at risk of of disappearing. Sure. So spinning, weaving, piecework, sort of needlework, it was the foundation originally of the old interweave, and it was always kind of this quirky little beating heart. But I really felt like spinners, weavers, you know, really traditional needleworkers responded to quality, sincerity, authenticity, and really making sure that we kept what was best about what we had always done. Uh, and so when when it came about that there was going to be a great big transformation in Interweave during the F&W bankruptcy, I saw an opportunity to sort of take our little corner and kind of run off and um, set up the kind of company that we wanted to be. So I think there are a lot of ways there are there are a lot of ways that people who spin and weave and you know piecework readers who are who are readers as much as crafters this really becomes part part of who you are. Like it's in your bones, it's in your blood. I started off as a knitter and I love knitting, but I am a spinner. Um, and so it, it seemed like a good opportunity to have a, a company that could just 
focus on people who who had this in their bones that way, and also kind of growing and, and finding new opportunities. And you said that you wanted to create a company that um, was the, was kind of what you wanted to see in the world. And what kind of company is that? So what are kind of the values there that you felt like were really important? Well, at the risk of sounding a little bit, uh, a little bit too self self too, too serious, I really kind of see this as a mission. And so the values that are important to me, and I think that are something what our readers respond to, are making sure that we are standing behind every piece of content we put out there. So it's high quality. Um, the it's a small team of people who are really dedicated to understanding their craft. Um, we are in sort of a community. We, we think of our ourselves as, as members and uh, our advertisers, teachers, folks out in the rest of the world as uh, a group of people who are always trying to preserve these crafts and take them forward. Uh, so, you know, I, I, the values that we have are really continuing to, to grow and, and move it forward to balance um, innovation, whether it's things like videos and new ideas with the things that have always been at our core, like events, magazines, things like that. You know, the first thing I think a lot of people noticed seems shallow, but it was important to us, which was to have really good paper and a spine because it's in the larger world. Sometimes it seems like, oh, print is print is the past and we're going to, you know, just put something out and it's not going to last. But we know that our folks often have spinoff handwoven piecework on their shelves from the time that it started, which is, you know, more than 40 years in some case. So thinking about making sure this was something that we were in for the long haul. And did those magazines always have nice paper and a spine or was there a time when they did and a time when they didn't and now that's back? Uh, I think for a lot of media companies over time as paper got more expensive and you needed to cut costs and save on postage, it got really tempting to have thinner paper, fewer pages, things like that. Uh, and it was something that we actually didn't really think about. We just sort of said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Okay. All right. And so I want to kind of walk back now and trace your the, the development of your career. So, sure. um, so where did you grow up and what did your parents do for work when you were growing up? Uh, I grew up in eastern Connecticut, which is, uh, you know, not quite the quiet corner of Connecticut, but definitely a sort of a... Um, a fairly rural area. My dad is uh, a mechanical engineer. My mom started off as an English teacher and then she went into public service and, you know, nonprofits. Um, before I was born, they, they were very much part of the back to the land movement. So I grew up in this house that was built in 1813 that my parents restored. So preservation is very much part of our family heritage. Um, before I was born, my parents had taken spinning and weaving classes because that's what you did in the 70s you went back to the earth so it wasn't something that they were really actively pursuing but it was kind of always in the back of my mind um i grew up without a tv so i was a, a big bookworm and i sort of have just kept turning my hobby into my career so i read a lot and i became a book editor uh, after college and you know worked in new york city worked in times square 
uh, and I worked for somebody who was a really talented, successful fiction editor, and she was a knitter, and she taught me to knit. Um, and it sort of took off, and then I started uh, publishing knitting books. I uh, worked on Maggie Rigetti's Knitting in Plain English, decided that it would be good to sort of revive that, so edited a new. And then um, there came a point where I really needed a change, and uh, didn't really particularly want to leave the New York City area, but I looked online at Interweave, and they had a job that was perfect for me. And it said no telecommuters would be will be accepted. And it took me a while to realize if you can't move to Colorado when you're 28 unemployed and single, when can you do it? <laughs> so I came out with a three-year no plan plan, which was, you know, for, for three years not to make any commitments, uh, whether to go back or whether to stay. And at the end of three years, I just kept kind of renewing it. And in the meantime, I learned so much at Interweave. And at one thing, one thing I learned was how to spin. Um, how to work with illustrated books, how to present information that wasn't just words on the page, but how to put it together as a as a full package. Um, after a few years, the opportunity to start Sockupied came about. We were doing that EMAG initiative, and I was a sock editor, and I said, hey, I want to try this. And I realized that being a magazine editor is fun, because when you're a book editor, and actually while I was in the Interweave Books Department, your book came out. That was very popular. We love that. Um, when you're a book editor, you convince somebody that what they wanted, what what you want them to do is their idea, and their name and their name goes on the cover. That's true. And when you're a magazine editor, you say, "We're going to do it my way," <laughs> and it's it's bringing together a variety of voices. But the editorial vo- voice and direction, uh, I really enjoyed having a little bit more say in that. So it's funny because you mentioned the back to the land movement and I'm thinking back to we had um, Barry Schacht and his wife Jane on the podcast not too long ago and Schacht Spindle that was also founded in that same movement and time period and and was all about, you know, spinning and weaving um, inspired by by those same ideas, which is interesting. Um, And so uh, you when you went to college, you went to Princeton, is that right? And you studied um, kind of literature and things like that. Did you know that you wanted to do publishing? Or how did you kind of go that route versus something else one could do with a literature degree? Well, I I used to like to say I can ask, would you like fries with that in three languages? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Although when I got out of school, and I think it's a little bit the case now, you know, in in the late 90s, there was a big boom. And so a lot of my fellow literature majors were going off to be management consultants and investment bankers, and I had no interest whatsoever. Um, Had I thought a little bit more about the fact that, you know, business is actually very important, uh, maybe I would have looked into it. But I just, I really wanted to be part of helping people get their voices across and just kind of being part of that. There's a certain, you know, fantasy about what the publishing world is like. Yes, there that, is. And um, the, the sort of pragmatic sense of you really have to be able to find the people who are going to buy this book. Right. You know, who are the 20,000 people who are going to spend $25 for this? And it's the same question whether you're in, you know, fiction prescriptive nonfiction, which we would call a how-to, or craft books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the ways that's sort of changed over the years is that 
you know, online education has really come up over the past 15 years. Um, I didn't really have any experience in magazines, but it used to be that it was just a, a book or a magazine. And we can now have different formats. So you can really think about, is this something that somebody does need to spend $25 on? Or can we put out a little tip? Or can it be a little ebook that's $10? So there's a lot more flexibility in how you want to present the information. One of the one of the tenets that I once heard, this is at a time when we were doing a lot of videos and they were coming out on DVDs or they were selling them online. And I think like a lot of people, I was like, well, I really want them to buy the DVD because we've put out this DVD. I want them to buy the DVD. And someone on the business side said, we want people to buy, we want people to get our content how they want it and where they want it and when they want it. So that sort of mental shift from here's how I want to disseminate this information. Here's how I want you to be a weaver or a crafter to let me think a little bit about what I can give you that fits your life. Yeah. And I think we're lucky as learners of craft now that there are a lot of options and a lot of ways to access material um, much more diverse ways to do that than there once were, you know, um, so that you're not just having to read step-by-step how-to instructions or take an in-person class. There's a whole variety of ways to learn. And, um, and so you mentioned that, uh, when you were working, um, at, at one of the big publishers in New York, you had a great editor you worked with and she taught you to knit. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about those early projects. I don't know if you remember the first project or what kind of captured your attention there. I sure do. It was a scarf and I it was a knitting store on the Upper West Side that is no longer there. There there is now a store on the Upper West Side, but it but it's much much more accessible than the one that used to be there. And she sort of said, "Well, go and pick a project." Uh I didn't really understand that I couldn't just get the cheapest needles and the cheapest yarn and put them together. (laughs) Sure. I think most people, I mean, I'm surprised you even went to, I guess, because you were in New York. I was going to say that you even went to a local yarn shop because I think most people who maybe live in in other places go to Joanne or Michael's or, or even Walmart, you know, and buy their materials for that first project. Yes. And I just didn't live in a place where there was any kind of a big box store. Right. Um, So... In a way, there were fewer choices. There were there was more help. Um, the materials were much nicer, but I didn't. I couldn't. You know, get. I suppose I could have made a fun fur scarf. That was kind of the era, but it wasn't something where I could have bought some really chunky yarn and just it. I think at the time I was probably making twenty thousand dollars a year, sure. which for a full time job living in in the New York City area was you know, buying, spending $40 on a scarf project was a real stretch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But it got you into the fiber arts world. And you said you looked um, for, a, you know, you were ready to make a change. You look for a new job. And, and um, I'm assuming you were familiar with Interweave just from looking for patterns or looking at books and things like that. Is that how you knew about them? I'm not exactly sure how I first came across Interweave Knits, but I used to go to the newsstand on my way home. I didn't really fully understand the publishing cycle. Sure. I was very frustrated that there would be months at a time where there was nothing new on the newsstand. <laughs> I would sit there and flip through them and decide if there was something I was going to buy. So I was, and there were a lot more knitting magazines then, I think. Yeah. Um, 
So, and it was right around that time that Scarf Style came out and that Interweave had always published a lot of different books, but I think that was an early fashionable, accessible knitting pattern book. So I became aware of Interweave through that. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Craftsy. And here is a message from Craftsy. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $3. Visit CraftsyOffers.com to sign up and the discount will automatically be applied at checkout. For only $3, you get a full year of access to over 1,500 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts, from instructors who are experts in their fields. With over 1,500 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. So visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. Com. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now back to my conversation with Anne. What was this job that you took there? Was it was it editing or something else? Yeah, I was a book content editor, and I was really a knitter. So having beading books and felting books and I don't think I really did many crochet books for a while, but there were all these new crafts I had to learn. And thinking about how to put the words together with the pictures, work it going from a huge company to a tiny company, um, you know, there, <laughs> there was just so much to adjust to. And I used to go home every day and I carpooled with my boss. <laughs> and I used to go home every day and think I am as dumb as a brick. I still have that feeling sometimes, but um, just at how much there was to learn was kind of astonishing. Yeah. And actually, the the thing that changed my life, I had started at the beginning of December, right after Thanksgiving. Uh, and so when it came time to Christmas, I wanted to go home and I had very little PTO because it accrues as you go along. So I had like two days and we had a United Way auction and in addition to bidding on various items, you could put 
you, you could buy a raffle ticket and you could get one for an extra day of PTO, which was what I did, or a certain kind of bodywork class or a spinning class. And I was like, oh, I, I know about I know about spinning. I used to take a class. I almost got certified at the gym, of course. Uh, and so when Amy Clark Moore, who was the editor of Spinoff, won the beginning spinning class, and it, it you, you, could, you could almost see the light bulb go off. Oh, that's what they meant. <laughs> and, and so being me, I went and told Amy, look at how look at what a dope I am. <laughs> I thought it was the wrong kind of spinning. And being Amy, she said, oh, do you want my class? And so she, she gifted me this class and changed my life. And that's how you learn how to spin. That's, that's funny. Spin. I was just talking to a spinner last week, and she was saying that she really struggles to have her blog content um, get noticed on Google in the right way because people always think spinning is like, bicycling spinning at, at the gym and not spinning fiber. And so she's like asking like, what keywords can I use and things like that? Because I think that that's a pretty common mistake um, that people make, but that's funny. Um, yeah. And we used to, once upon a time when we had a, there was an SEO expert who was suggesting that we really needed to target the term spin magazine. That's a different thing. Right. You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> this is a problem. This is a problem for people who make spinning content. Right, right. And so it's like if if people are looking for Spin Magazine and come to Spin Off, that is not going to make right. them happy. We no, want people, we want people who <laughs> want to find spinning, spinning wool, spinning yarn content to find Spin Off. Right, right. Not music and not and not bicycling. <laughs> So funny. Yes. So Hugo weaving, Sigourney Weaver. Nope, right. Nope. 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 <laughs> You're not going to get any of it here. Yeah, that's funny. And so I wonder what some of those differences are between the kind of books you were working on when you were working in New York and creating this, um, what did you call it? Prescriptive nonfiction? Is that what you called oh. it? The how-to sort of, or craft, right. I guess that's different from a craft book. So is that mm -hmm. like co a cooking book? Or I'm not sure what the differences are there, but if you could explain that and then talk a little bit about, you know, what makes a, a really good craft book in your opinion. Sure. So prescriptive nonfiction, I would say, you know, would be what we used to call self-help. Okay. So, you Got know, it. Uh, there's, there's, you know, storytelling, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and then there's, you know, how to get rock hard abs or how to, you know, <laughs> six sigma business or something like that. Um, and then I suppose it doesn't have to be an illustrated book to be a sort of a craft book, but it's certainly most of the ones I've worked on. And, and it is an area where a, a picture definitely tells a thousand words. Um, so... In terms of what makes a good craft book, one of the things that's really challenging is putting yourself in the mind of the person who has never seen this before. Yeah. Because if it's something that you have been developing as an author or an editor, and you know exactly how you got to all these, all these choices, thinking if somebody turns the page and they just look at it for the first time, what are they going to think? What are they going to see? Um, is surprisingly difficult. Um, I think good visuals are absolutely key to a good craft book. It could be illustrations or photography. Photography is such a skill that, you know, I think, I think that the people who photograph professionally are often really worth their weight, worth their salt. Uh, 
having an ability to see a, a, a project and, and an ability to see a picture are two different things. So having it be appealing and also illustrative. Um, in terms of quality content, you know, people often think that if they teach a course that that will just translate into a book. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a classroom, you have a trust that, you know, the person who's sitting there in your, in your classroom is, is captive and they trust you and they can raise their hand. So you're going to have to establish that sort of guiding somebody through knowing that at any, any moment they might go off in their own direction. I guess there are so many different kinds of um, craft books and and I think a lot of the best ones involve a technique as well as a project, as, as well as some pattern element, some sort of um, putting it all together. Here's how you try it out. Uh, so having those really support each other. And I actually, I worked on a book once where the sample that we were submitted, that, that was submitted to us, didn't match the instructions. It was a, a book where, say, it said, there are six stitches and the project said that the project had four. And I went back to the author who didn't really agree that that was a problem. And I said, well, I think we have a covenant with a reader that we need to, you know, that what, what the directions that we give has to make the thing in the picture. Right. <laughs> right. No, that's a fundamental truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've all, all of us who have written patterns have had times when that has fallen short. And you feel terrible, you know? So, yeah. And I agree with you that the the how-to or the technique presentation in addition to the pattern is important, sort of putting it all together in the project. And so the projects play an important role. Um, and for a while, when I was pitching book ideas, I would get frustrated because some of the publishers would always be like, we just want 20 projects. And it's like, okay, we're in a, an age now where I don't necessarily think you can have a book, sell those 20,000 copies or whatever you're looking for. <laughs> Maybe in craft book world, it's 15,000 copies or whatever, but um, with just 20 projects, because you can get a lot of projects online. And I feel like the books that you hang on to are the ones that also teach you a technique. And you think, I can never get rid of this because I need to know how to do this thing. And this has got that's in the instructions, you know? So those are the ones that I value the most. And I think that that is an area where I had to learn how to give salespeople credit because when they said you have to make the number on the cover big, they were often going on some sort of data. But bringing those two things together, I have in my mind the, the reader who will want this and this is what she wants along with, okay, you understand you're going to go into a bookstore or you're going to put it on the website and what are people going to click through? There's sort of a... Um, understanding people's revealed preference, meaning what they do versus what they tell you yeah. they want. Uh, I love that term, revealed preference. That's a good oh, one. I stole it from some sort of... Sure, but that's a, <laughs> that's a great term because I definitely have found even 
choosing webinar presenters or things like that, people will say, well, we really want to learn this topic. This is something we need. And then you you find the great presenter and then the registration number is really low. And then you have the cl- the webinar presenter that's about how to grow your Instagram account and you can't, you know, you have so many people, you can't accommodate them all. And it's it's just interesting. It's like you can state a preference, but what your behavior is, is not always the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you got to Interweave, Linda Ligon was there. Is that correct? And so I wondered what you thought about her and what you learned from her. You were there for a long time. I don't remember how many years, but over a decade, I think. Um, and working, you know, with her. And, and I, anyway, I just wondered what what you what what your memories are of working with Linda at that time. Sure, I was there for about thirteen years, and over time. I had pretty much every role in the editorial department and Linda had pretty much every role in managing. So uh, Linda comes in with all kinds of unexpected ideas. And if you're coming from a very sort of restrained background, sometimes you sit in a meeting with Linda and you think, I don't know where this is coming from. This doesn't make any sense. I think she's crazy. <laughs> but then it it will often, you'll find that she actually had a, a great idea that you just need to think about things a little differently. Um, I've learned that when Linda says it will be easy, it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but it will probably not be easy. Uh, she has a real talent for finding out what people's strengths are and kind of letting them go off in that direction. She has this remarkable non-attachment. So for, for people like me who tend to be, you know, very much involved in, Oh, I wanted to go this way. I wanted to go that way. She is really pretty much willing to let something take its course, which I think is how she developed this whole company that went off in directions. She probably never could have even imagined. Um, she also gave me a great gift, which was to say, wow, you know, you, you are just, you just love to learn. You are always learning. And the reason that was a gift was that if, if you have any fear of doing something wrong or being a perfectionist, the ability to reframe something as I'm, I'm absorbing new information, I'm learning, I'm developing new skills really frees you up in that sense. Um, Linda also has these fascinations and passions that she comes back and tells you about and gets you excited about them too. I had zero interest in South America. I had zero interest in Peru, none. And you would see the textiles in the office. You would hear the stories. You would read some of the books because she eventually started putting out books as Thrums with Thrums books. So, you would find these stories from all around that were sort of unexpectedly delightful. And Linda is now what I would, I call her our instigator in chief. She comes up with ideas right now. She's fascinated with potholders, the potholder looms. And it's not just her. She's fascinated with them because she's found this community of people who are doing extraordinary weaving patterns with potholder looms. And it's just active and fun and curious. Um, So 
she'll often sort of come into a room or a virtual room as we often are and set down this, this idea to see where it goes. So she just, she's sort of unafraid to push boundaries. We work really well together because sometimes I can get a little bit too stuffy and, and, uh, rule bound and she's like I think that's silly <laughs> I don't think you know foolish consistency is a hobgoblin of little minds so. <laughs> yeah yeah that's great she she strikes me as someone who truly is visionary in that way um, the big picture thinker and the passionate um, person who's passionately exploring things and that's such a gift to the fiber community and has been for so long um, so that's that's great. And um, and then, you know, I, I also wanted to talk a little bit about F&W and kind of what happened there, um, especially in the last couple of years. You know, I remember being in touch with some F&W employees um, over that that last period and, and having them <laughs> describe F&W as the Death Star <laughs> And Voldemort, one person described FNW as Voldemort. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and I think about um, Quilter's newsletter and some of the really beautiful publications that had a huge long history that were wiped out in the sort of last couple of years of that ownership. And anyway, just I wondered what your thoughts are, reflections back at that time, your experience, um, you know, having this sort of private equity company come in and and what happened to the company as a result well and to be fair i always worked for private equity because um aspire was a private equity company right much much smaller but that was also private equity you know i learned so much by having a variety of different leadership styles um learned a lot of business terms that i might not have otherwise known we were pushed into new directions. Sometimes it was, everybody's going to put out a new piece of video content every week, which was <laughs> like, okay, I don't know how to do that. Uh, everything I know about publishing for the web pretty much learned there. Uh, it was, you know, it reminds me a little bit of what we've seen with knitting.com recently. Yeah. That, and I, and I have a specific reason I mentioned that. It's people from who don't have experience in the community can have a really valuable perspective. You know, they can be that I've never seen this before. I'm turning the page. What do I expect? But it's also really tempting, I think, particularly for woman-dominated industries, to think, well, I, I know how to do this better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no reason why it's being done this way. Right. And right. that is my least favorite phrase ever. There's always a reason. It may not yeah. be a reason. It may not may no longer be a valid reason. You may not like the reason, but there's always a reason. So, um, and I also think that the craft audience bristles at people who think that they know better. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, you, you kind of have to show that you're really in it. Sure. And, and that sets up a sort of a a relationship where I think the audience 
isn't sure what, how much to trust. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really difficult. I think they, I think a lot of the strategies just didn't really work out in the way that was expected. And they tried a whole bunch of different things. They did. Um, and I mean, in a way that's sort of what the point of chapter 11 is supposed to do is you're supposed to be able to say, okay, we're going to set all that aside and we're going to start fresh. Mm -hmm. And so as much as the chapter 11 was devastating for a lot of people, it was, you know, it's certainly devastating for crafters. It was devastating for staff. The idea of being able to say, we're going to pick up what what worked about this and move it forward uh, is you know, kind of the, the sort of the whole principle behind bankruptcy, and it was the dream that that Linda and John and I had. Okay, we're we're going to try to set all this old stuff behind us. Honestly, it sort of feels like a blur at this point, <laughs> especially because we started right before the pandemic, um, and you know, we're just barely getting started, and the whole world turned upside down. So, uh, but but being able to say we're going to take this little um, this little gem this little beating heart and, and, and kind of walk away from the stuff that we want to get away from. It was, it was really a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell us, so John is John Bolton and he was, I think the general manager, I forgot what his title really was. Um, he was at Anori for a long time and he left and came back right at the end there. And I wondered um, if you could talk about how the three of you came together. So you, you saw this happening Mm-hmm. And it was it was possible that it that these were these titles these magazines were were just going to go away completely, um, and and some pieces of them did get bought by other folks too, mm-hmm. not just by long. You know, this is not the only um, iteration of of what happened, but mm-hmm. um, but how did you all say to one another? Mm-hmm. I have an idea. Let's yeah. see if we can get these, you know, and and do something new with them. Um. Well, just to back up, yes, John is John Bolton, who is was one of the founders of Quilting Arts magazine, right? Which is still still around, Quilting Arts, and then um, became part of Interweave in two thousand seven. So I worked with John. John was always my my boss's boss or my boss's boss's boss, <laughs> <laughs> and so he he left shortly after F and W bought Interweave and started Craft Beer and Brewing magazine or Unfiltered Media, which publishes Craft Beer and Brewing magazine, different kind of crafts. Yeah. Um, also very, something people are very passionate about. And, uh, and also something that people in SEO world get mixed up with craft and craft. But anyway, I've had that yeah. problem too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so a couple of years later, it was kind of a, um, we, we, were, we were surprised and delighted when the then CEO brought John back as the general manager and uh, who worked there for a couple of years. And um you know, I I haven't really talked to him about what made him yeah. leave the second time. He went he went back to be full time at Craft Beer and Brewing. I think that was part of it was that he had this business, other business that was mm-hmm. growing. Um, and so actually, the day I I'd, I'd had this sort of fantasy in the back of my mind, and I had had this fantasy that I, you know, that that we could take spin off and handwoven. I were I wasn't sure if they would let us have piecework because it hasn't. Um, I wasn't sure if it was too close to the knitting community, mm-hmm. but we were, there was specialty fiber. So that was our group of specialty fiber. So the day that we declared bankruptcy, I think Linda was out of the country, but I called up John kind of as 
uh, <laughs> as, a, as a shoulder to cry on, or I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> and, you know, as time went by, Linda and I talked about it a little bit more. And before too long, she pointed out that craft beer and brewing does a lot of the things that you need to have a media company. So whether you have three titles or six titles or something like that, you need somebody to handle circulation. You mm-hmm. need somebody to negotiate with a printer. You need somebody to run your website. Uh, you need somebody to run your finances. All the back end. All the back end. And so John came up with the proposal, how about if we partner? It, how about if we work as a partnership? So, um, you know, Unfiltered and Long Thread are sort of a team and they handle all of our back end, uh, you know, and, and they are very much involved in what we do, but long thread handles all of the content. Mm-hmm. So it, it has worked out incredibly well. Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure because John, as I said, it always been my boss's boss or my boss's boss's boss, but it turns out that we work really well together. Uh, and so also, I think he has an understanding of the ways that it might not look logical to have uh, to spend more money on paper, <laughs> right. to um, to have this business that we're really focusing on on you know taking care of the core. Uh, but he kind of understands why that works. And John had worked with Linda since the two of them were very much part of the executive, the leadership team at Interweave back when I was just down trying to figure out how to how to put a book together. <laughs> um, so, you know, they had a lot of respect there as well. Right. So it's the three of you mm-hmm. together. And so talk a little bit about the changes that you've made. I mean, you you got these titles, these magazine titles, you have the back end um, taken care of. And so what was the vision of how they were going to stay the same? Mm-hmm. Um, because they do have devoted, loyal audiences. Mm-hmm. And maybe how they were going to come into a new era in a way that was more I don't know, relevant or authentic to the community versus what was being tried when they were part of this big company? Well, we had sort of uh, gone through different iterations of how we were putting together videos and online courses. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we had to pause a little bit, but we have um, really spent time with instructors that we know well who are in some cases, big names, in some cases are more regionally known, but are really good at teaching their subjects. So uh, focusing on the in-depth content. Um, We have also started a a couple of different all-access subscriptions where instead of saying, this video is this much, this video is this much, you know, instead of saying you have to pay separately for the for, well, that's uh, we actually include a PDF version of our magazines with every subscription. You can get PDF and you can get PDFs back to the beginning. You can get access through Zinio back to the beginning of time. Um, but being able to say, here's a subscription and we're going to give you everything. We're going to put our whole hearts and souls into it. We're going to put everything we can think of into it. We have a cool pattern. We're going to put that in there. So... That is one, and it, it, it took a while to get from thinking about SKUs, shopkeeping units, and you know how much revenue we were going to get from each product to how are we going to have a growing suite 
of of content. I mean, I guess content feels like such a um, feels like such an MBA word in some ways, but it's sort of it covers. I guess media is a better word, but it, it covers all the the words, the pictures, the the sounds, all of it all together. What building a little world. So that that's one big change that we made. And you also started a podcast Mm -hmm. as part of Long Thread. So um, I feel like more craft companies should have podcasts. And um, there's a lot of great stories to tell if you do it right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm always happy when I see, um, I know um, Sulky, the thread company, is starting a podcast, for example. Mm -hmm. And I was so happy to see that. So because I do think there's, like I said, there's great stories to tell about thread. Mm-hmm. There are a whole lot of them if you start thinking about it. So anyway, I wondered uh, what the podcast is like and and sort of why you decided to add audio into the mix. John told me to. <laughs> good, good reason. <laughs> really, that was one of the early things that <laughs> Craft Brand Brewing has a very popular podcast. Okay. Uh, and so that was one of the early on things that I said, okay. And had a bit of a crisis about it. Like what, there are other podcasts out there. What are we doing? That's, that's, you know, worth the time. And Kate Larson, who's the editor of Spinoff and Piecework said, you're going to get interesting people and let them talk. And that really kind of opened things up because it meant that I, as the host, didn't have to be all that clever. I just had to get interesting people. So one of the things is that, um, so we have different websites for hand-woven spin-off piecework, um, but the podcast really deliberately includes all of them. And I try to keep a balance between people who are really known for their weaving, people who are uh, embroiderers. In some cases, you know, people do more than one thing. In some cases, people work on something like dyeing that isn't, that's, that's, important to multiple communities, but isn't the core of any one of our communities. So that was really, uh, I, I think that crafts do have these sort of stories and the people who do them, uh, whether it's that they have devoted themselves to a particular skill or that this is something they grew up with. Um, that's That's something that you can't get as easily when you have to translate people's voices through another medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's super intimate. You're right in people's headphones too, hearing their, that themselves, as you said, first person tell their own story, which is, um, is really powerful. So, and you also have a, an in-person event and I want to make sure we talk about that. It's called soar. It happens in the fall and what do you feel like is important about having an in-person event be part of a media company? That is a good question. Um, SOAR was an event that happened, I, I believe it was up over 30 years when it ended because there, um, the management didn't really see an opportunity for revenue growth. Sure. So they weren't able to make it bigger, so decided to focus on other things. But it is a touchstone for a lot of spinners. It's an opportunity to get together and hear what what the community has to say. 
it's taken different forms throughout the years. So one of the things that having this break let us do was to say, which of the elements from all these different years do we want to carry forward? Mm. In some ways, our, our first our first renewed soar was last was September 2021 in Chautauqua in Boulder. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it was most similar to the original soars, which were up at the Colorado State University Mountain Campus in the 80s. We came down 3,000 feet. It still wasn't enough. <laughs> it turns out 5,000 feet is more than we want to do. Um, but we didn't have the 300-person event with a huge marketplace and gallery. So we were able to sort of pick and choose. Um, it let our teachers get together and spend a little bit of time together. And there's Jane Patrick once said that some of the best conversations she'd ever had were sitting around with friends spinning. Oh, 100%. If you think about even, um, I always think back to high school art class, you know, and those big black tables that were in our art studio. And I took art all through all through high school. And and some of the best conversations I had, you know, about deep things in high school were just making things looking down at your paper, you know, cutting or coloring or whatever we were doing. And everybody else is doing the same thing, right? So they're not looking directly at you. It's almost like talking with your teenager in the car, you know, like, that's the best time to have those conversations. For some reason, when your brain is sort of occupied. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. So and when you look at the long thread logo, which I which I love, it's, uh, it's sort of a, a a strand, a solid strand, and then there are three smaller strands coming apart. It's almost as though you're applying it. And so one of them is up and one of them is down, one of them's in the middle, and they sort of undulate. And for me, SOAR has an element of that as well, but it's it's believing that these all go up and down together. And so we don't snip one off. We don't snip off apply because it's down. Or at least we don't, you know, that's, we, we don't say this is not growing, it's on a downward trajectory. So forget it. We understand that all three of these intertwine and that crafts are cyclical and people come back to them at different times in their lives. So something that might not have looked like it was making sense, such as an event soar, which, which does take a lot of, uh, t- takes a lot of time, is still an important part of that um, of that connection of those, those strands. And I think coming together in person like that, there's no better way to build people who are raving fans of your brand than for them to come and have this magical experience and of togetherness and belonging and then go back out into the world. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's huge. And, and I think it's a good idea for media companies. <laughs> um, you know, if you look to other industries, many media companies and other industries have in-person events. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's for that reason. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations. Oh, sure. You have some good ones. <laughs> so if it's okay with you, I'll turn there now. So mm-hmm. um, you said that you recently, or I'm not sure how recently, but your big splurge, yeah, new to you. So <laughs> is a Saxony spinning wheel. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, and actually, I picked this up at SOAR from Eugene Textile Center. Um, it is a it's a Jensen, so it's a it's a custom it's a handmade wheel. I had not been looking for a spinning wheel, but it sort of spoke to me. It's a double treadle. It's cherry. I've oiled it twice because when I 
before it came to me, it was down in, uh, I think it was in Portland. So somewhere much lower and much more humid. And now it's up in Colorado at 5,000 feet, very dry. But it's, uh, it's, you know, made in an old fashioned way. It has, it has some metal parts, but there's a lot of wooden pieces that hold it together. And it is, it's furniture. So it's it calls to me to sit and okay maybe watch a little tv but it calls to me to sit there and appreciate it and uh just get some spinning in it sounds like it would have fit in in the house you grew up in yes if i could have (laughs) (laughs) you know and yeah the house i grew up in when i first told my mother i am taking spinning at the gym she was puzzled and she said well we have a wool wheel and a flax wheel upstairs (laughs) and mom so yeah yeah, right. Okay. Um, and then you wanted to recommend Coastal, a yarn that's a collaboration between Sincere Sheep and Elemental Effects. Yes. Um, so Janine, uh, Jean DeCoster, who works for Element, who is Elemental Effects, has a lot of background in um, yarn design. And this one is a blend of Shanico wool, which I believe is a single source in, in Oregon, Eastern Oregon, uh, Belgian linen and silk. And it's tightly plied so it's very and it's very cool it's good like summer wool and i got mine from brooks ennis of sincere sheep who is a natural dyer and so i am kind of working on a sweater i don't even remember what the name of the pattern is but working on a sweater yeah and it sounded like it will take a long time to get there always takes a long time yeah absolutely um and then you said you're dreaming about plans for new yarn from redfish dye works Yes. Redfish Dye Works, I've seen them at various weaving shows and, and, and multi-craft events like Red Alder um, Fiber Arts Retreat. And they have these incredible ranges of color. And it's mostly silks or silk blends. And I don't consider myself very confident with color. I was not somebody who knew what she was doing in art class and wasn't really invited back. So... I've just sort of progressed in my understanding a little bit. And at first I got, you know, sort of matchy, matchy, pinky purples. And then I discovered that, oh, it was really cool if you put together this apple green and this sort of apple red. Uh, And so most recently I was drawn to the fact that they have colors that are very close in tone. If you, unless you look carefully, you might not realize that these two reds sitting next to each other are distinct colors. And so I wound up getting reds, oranges, and purples, but they're not exactly the same. Mm, that sounds amazing. Like mm-hmm. super rich and gorgeous. Yeah. So that's awesome. Well, Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. I like talking to you too. Thanks so much. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone. From knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a full year of Craftsy premium membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. 
When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.